Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor, and this is a special edition of my Herald podcast, part of our coverage of the SNP conference. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the deputy leader of the SNP, Keith Brown. Mr. Brown, thanks very much indeed for for joining me. Let, let's talk about the topic right away that's been dominant all week in both uh, Holyrood and Westminster, the issue of health spending, the issue of spending on health and on care. The UK government say they're offering £1.1 billion extra a year to Scotland. What's wrong with that? The SNP voted against it in the Commons. Why? Well, what's wrong with that? Two things I can think of off the top of my head. First of all, this has only come about because they want to raise extra funding for um, care services, health and care services uh, in the rest of the UK. Now, we've had to take on some of the huge fundamental changes in this area before now, but we can't get access to that extra funding because England didn't want to move at that pace. And that's really frustrating. But I think the other thing about this is, first of all, that uh, the way it's to be raised, the money's to be raised, we believe it's fundamentally unfair and the biggest burden falls on those with the least resource. So it's almost like another Tory poll tax. Of course, more resources are uh, welcome, but we have tried now for a number of years to make sure we have a more progressive taxation system in Scotland, and this undercuts that. And of course, behind all of this, this is a further set of reversals from a manifesto they promised two years ago. They promised not to reduce the size of the armed forces, not to remove the triple lock. They're now going to have people working, prison officers working till they're 68 years old, and they've reduced the protection of the triple lock from one, what is already one of the worst pensions in Europe. So They say it's only for a single year. They say it's only because of the exceptional circumstances of COVID. Yeah, they may say that, but they said that they wouldn't do it at all just in 2019 when they saw office. So I'm not sure how much story you can put by that. You know, this is a government that signed an international agreement on Brexit and then threatened to break it the day afterwards, virtually. So this is not a government you can trust. But the UK government say it's 1.1 billion extra for Scotland. They say it, that, that the health service and care are, are, are and the health service, particularly NHS, is a UK service. They say this is funding but through through a UK system from the UK government, and they say they're perfectly entitled to go ahead with that. Well, first of all... And it should be welcomed in Scotland. The funding does not come from the UK government. It comes from the taxpayer, of which Scottish taxpayers more than pay their share, and Scottish resources are a vital part of that. So let's not get uh, too far ahead with the idea this is some grandiose uh, gesture of generosity from the UK government. And what they're having to do... Uh, I mean, I heard one of the ministers saying today that this was been something that previous governments haven't done. They've been in government for 11 years. They haven't done this and they should have done this. We have taken on the big issue of how to much more uh, integrate our health and care services. And we've done that at our own expense. I'll give you an analogy, uh, Brian. First of all, they cut their police officers by 20,000. We increased theirs up to 17,000. Because they spend less on police officers, there's less money comes to Scotland. So we have to fund up. You've got to find that extra money. So this is just one of the anomalies, the inconsistencies, the unfairness of the current funding formula, and another reason why we need to have independence and control our own resources. We will, of course, come to independence during this interview. We're talking about anomalies. One of the issues that some are raising, uh, raised indeed in, in, in my Herald podcast, the, 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 the weekly one, is was the idea that this is a distinctive new tax that bypasses the devolved system. It bypasses it in terms of the revenue raising because that's UK done. It bypasses it in terms of the allocation of spending because the intention is that it goes straight to the health service. Are you are you concerned at this concerned at that 
and concerned that this could set a precedent perhaps for, for other uh, forms of funding? Yes, and it's it's more um, in a line of different precedents, I think, uh, Brian. So you've seen this way of trying to get round evolution agreements, you know, directly talking to local authorities, trying to encourage them to accept very minimal funding from the levelling up fund, for example. So you've seen this bypassing of devolution. And you're right, because this is about raising taxes through national insurance. So raising taxes, essentially national insurance is a tax. Initially national insurance and, and, and ultimately uh, income tax. But that has no automatic right to come back to the people, uh, the mm-hmm. government of Scotland. It's simply what's raised by the UK government. They can then decide if they want to pass on some of that money and it will only be passed on if they spend it on a similar function in England. Yeah. So yeah. that is the condition. So they're just freely after years have gone on about uh, the Scottish government taxing people, the most highly taxed part of the UK, which was always wrong, given that there are more people in Scotland that pay less tax than the rest of the UK than they pay more tax. But now they're increasing the tax base on Scotland and we might get some of that back. It just fundamentally illustrates the unfairness of this union. What about your own proposals for a, it's described as a national care service, but will it be a national service in that sense, or will it be setting standards for local authorities? Because the local authorities are, are worried. They are, they are saying you're taking powers away from them in children's services, alcohol, drug services, social work, etc. It's, it's a very good point. There will definitely be my prediction, there will be setting of standards that comes out of this, because that's something that's fundamental to the idea of a national care service, that everyone across the country is able to access on the same basis and get the same standard of uh-huh. care. Um, but the, as you'll know yourself, Brian, this uh, document is out for consultation right now, so the discussion is okay. going on. I've had discussion with local authority counterparts as well, so that is the basis of the discussion, and uh, there's no question it will be the flagship policy uh, over the course of but, the next but, two but years. It, but it's, it's, I mean, the National Health Service, for example, is free at the point of need and paid for by social funding. There's no, there's no payment. You don't pay anything regardless of how, uh, how ill or, or, or how well you are. But a care service is different from that, isn't it? It's not, you're, it's not going to be entirely free. It's not going to be entirely socially funded? Well, I think we do have to wait and see what model comes out. You'll see from the, the consultation document, there are a number of different models that might be followed. Yeah. Um, and also the role of local authorities could be quite significantly different depending on which one you follow as well. So you know, let's have the consultation. Let's do that. I didn't see a great deal of consultation about a 2% increase in national income that, uh, national income um, contributions. Yes. We're going to have a proper consultation in relation to this. And we're already starting to see uh, substantial contributions coming in. And I've had... Myself, although it's not central to my portfolio, I've had a number of discussions with stakeholders already. You you mentioned a lack of consultation. One issue where there was a very definite lack of consultation is over the COVID passport or the COVID registration proposals in Scotland. And nightclubs are now saying that this is going to have vast expense for them with no proven benefit. Well, I think we do have to wait uh, and see exactly what the implications are. But it is true to say, because uh, I know this because I've been involved myself under the uh, guidance of the Deputy First Minister, discussions have been taking place with um, stakeholders across the board. And it is true to say sometimes you have to move quite quickly in this pandemic. If you look at where we're at now in terms of, um, you know, the current variant, the Delta variant and the impact that's having, huge mm-hmm. impact across the country. So you have to respond quite quickly. And of course, what's been proposed is no different substantially from what's been proposed in England. And it's mm-hmm. just bewildering to find out why Labour and the Conservatives are supportive of it in England but against it in Scotland, and also why they won't recognise that France and Germany and various other countries have seen the merits in this. It's a regrettable step. I think everybody concedes that point because yeah. it does limit, limit some people's individual freedoms. That is acknowledged. And it's for that reason that we'll have three weekly reviews and we want to lift this as soon as it's possible. But just now, it's something we need to do urgently in order to drive down the infection rates. 
Let me turn you, thanks for that, uh, Minister. Let me turn you to a quote from the, your, your Cabinet colleague, Kate Forbes, the Finance Secretary. She says, we are a pro-jobs, pro-business and pro-prosperity government. Would that description apply to all the members of the government? Would it, would it apply to your Green partners, for example, who I don't think would, would, would use that, that uh, sort of language, that sort of approach? Well, you'll do know, I'm sure, Brian, from the agreement, cooperation agreement we signed, there is different language which is used by both the parties in relation, for example, to GDP. Yes. Um, their views of the Greens in terms of growth, yes. economic growth is well known. But there is a commitment to jobs. So they, what we're saying, for example, in oil and gas about a just transition, those are shared things across both parties. And there's a huge amount that the parties have in common. But for the SNP, it is the case we want to see uh, prosperity. We want to see uh, growth. We want to see jobs being protected and created. And, of course, that's set against a backdrop just now of astonishing labour shortages arriving yes. from So uh, this is a very real issue for us, but we do want to see increasing prosperity because we in the SNP believe that's the way we can better fund even better public services apart from anything else, but also alleviating the poverty, which is in the UK. It's one of the worst in the developed world. And, uh, uh, you know, attempts, for example, or decisions to take £20 a month of people on universal credit will exacerbate that. So, yes, we are in favour of prosperity. Come to the the, the North Sea in a moment, but you're in favour of... Increasing gross domestic product, increasing GDP, the, the Greens take a different approach. They, they talk about well-being, something that, they, that is recognised in the document. You're in favour of actually growing the economy. And I hear in the First Minister's programme for government, I hear lots of individual schemes, welcome, I'm sure, in, in their own rights, such as rates relief and business support, etc. But where is the big drive? Where's the big idea to stimulate enterprise, if that is indeed what you're in favour of? Well, I think the work that's been done from, uh, maybe not be too obvious from some of the media coverage, but some of the work being done by Ivan McKee and Kate Forbes in terms, mm-hmm. terms of talking to stakeholders, whether it's things like green ports, which have been suggested as well, or some of the stuff that's been done by Ivan in particular in relation to procurement from within Scotland um, and building that base of suppliers, for example, in relation to COVID products, if you like, I think that's really important. Plus, it's also the case that we're doing a, a great deal in terms of foreign direct investment, where Scotland has a what's been described as a sparkling track record. We think uh-huh. we could substantially increase that. Uh-huh. As an independent country, if you look at what's happened to Ireland post-Brexit, uh, English-speaking companies have been looking to locate within the EU and see Ireland as a natural place. We could substantially increase that within uh, Scotland and that circumstances where we still members of the EU. And you'll also see the increase in the number of offices, or two further offices to be created by the Scottish Government in other countries to make sure we can maximise the export opportunities there. We've seen a huge fall in exports uh, under Brexit. I mean, absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, off the edge of a cliff. Uh-huh. Uh, and yet Scotland was the only part of the, e, uh, the UK which had a positive balance of payments, if you like. And but this- if you're in, fa- in, in favour of increasing GDP, presumably you're in favour of enterprise, you're in favour of a, a, a modulated free market. When it comes to the North Sea, North Sea oil and gas, as you mentioned there, there's 100,000 jobs directly involved, many more indirectly. And those workers really worry. They really worry when they hear the deal with the Greens involving talking about reassessing licences, pressurising the UK government to do that for existing fields, about a, a just transition. They, they, they want to see, see a bit more detail on, on, on that. They really worry. Can you guarantee that those jobs can be, be replaced in what's known as the green sector? 
I guarantee that's what our aim is. And I think back to five or six years ago, we had a similar situation with a large fall in the price of oil, if you remember. And we came up with a number of innovative schemes to make sure people can stay in the industry or move into other industries in the meantime and then go back again. We did a lot of work, um, alternative options for people coming out of that industry, especially in the supply chain. So that commitment, and we heard it today from the First Minister, is an absolute commitment to, to say... We can't have, as with the miner strike and the deindustrialization of the Thatcher area with the Tories then, of just putting people onto the scrap heap. We have to manage this process. Uh, and I think that's the right approach to take. And actually, there's a great deal of cross-party agreement with the Greens in relation to that. Um, there are areas of disagreement, as you've pointed out. But in relation to that, a just transition, making sure people currently working in that industry can get good as well-paid jobs as they currently have in other alternative industries and preferably in green and renewable industries. Minister, I'm going to turn to independence in a second, but one in your own, just one briefly, perhaps in your own area of of, of justice. Uh, there's a, a review now of Scotland's, well, it's generally called the historic third verdict of not proven. It's been called a few other things uh, uh, down down the years, including by Sir Walter Scott. It didn't seem very be very supportive. Has basically has the third verdict had its day? Has it? Has it is it over? Well, there is a range of views in Parliament. Uh, in all the parties, there are different views within the parties. Um, and it's certainly true in the legal profession, there are different views. And also, perhaps the most telling thing is we are hearing, as we heard today, actually, I was asked a question, a general question today about this. People have experienced that verdict and the dissatisfaction they felt when that verdict's been handed down. Mm-hmm. It leaves, in their view, them in limbo. Um, and other aspects, some of the uncertainties about what it actually means is very important as well. So for that reason, we think there is a compelling case to look at change. What we're not going to do is rush to do it right now, as we'll be encouraged to do by the Tories. If you're in government, you have to take people with you. So that consultation, and I know there have been discussions in the past, I understand that point. But for me, especially with the legal profession, but more widely, we want to take views because what we move to has to be sustainable if we do abolish that. So a definite commitment, an early course to having that consultation and then moving forward, depending on the outcome of the consultation. But, But moving forward, Minister, is predicated upon the probability, the presumption, that that third verdict is likely to go? Well, let's see what what happens. I mean, you you say that, Brian, but there's also a very big split in terms of people's views on what should replace it. So should it be not proven and proven, guilty, not guilty, and so on? These are, and, And also, it's true to say there are quite a lot of interdependencies with that verdict, with other parts of the justice system, and that's why it's really important to take on board some of the concerns of the legal profession as well. So it's a genuine consultation. We want to hear views, but we start and we put it in a manifesto because we understand the concerns people have expressed about the unsatisfactory nature of it for many people. Let me turn you to independence, the big aim, of course, of the SNP, a big topic, I'm sure, at the, the party conference, albeit a digital um, conference. But you now have a, uh, a team of officials, government officials, working on a new white paper, a new prospectus for independence. Will they answer all the big questions? Will they answer the question on currency, for example? Uh, well, we, the SNP, have answered it for our point of view in the first place. We did that when we agreed our Sustainable Growth Commission um, now, there is, a, of course, uh, a difference. And that, and that is keep, keeping sterling in the, in the short term and, and moving to a, a Scottish currency in, in the midterm. That's right. But there are parts of that policy which, of course, you have to look at again in relation to COVID. When you've had the massive accumulation of public debt, you have to look at that. So I'm not, again, saying that we have to look at these things afresh, but we have established our position in principle. I know some people are unhappy about that, but we have done that. But you're right to say, Brian, um, uh, civil servants will look at uh, all these issues uh, in the round. Um, It will be informed, though, by also what the SNP have already agreed. And we've agreed quite a number of things in relation to the sustainable, uh, sorry, the social 
Justice Commission as well. So we want to present a vision uh, as something that people can gather around in terms of yeah. um, an independent Scotland, a progressive, green, fairer country, and contrast that with what we would be leading with the UK. Just to clarify, does that mean that COVID, the uncertainty of COVID, makes the move to an independent Scottish currency to take longer, likely to take longer, likely to be be further into the future? No, I I think you have to look at what the impact of COVID has been. And it may be that you want to look at the the economic, because the Sustainable Growth Commission was about the economy, a proposed economy of an independent Scotland. Uh It's worth bearing in mind, Brian, you know as well as I do, there are quite a number of different both parties and individuals and movements, parts of the movement that support independence, and they will have different views on what an independent Scotland should be in terms of okay. its economy. But the SNP, and through the process you've mentioned, the Scottish government will come to its own view and it will seek to try and answer, unlike the Brexit referendum, which was just a shambles <laughs> of public information, seek to answer some of those questions. Well, you mentioned Brexit. Of course, that's the big change. That's the, the material change in circumstances, to quote from your manifesto, that's happened since the 2014 referendum. If Scotland becomes independent, you would definitely seek to rejoin the European Union as a member, would you? Well, once again, I have to say to you, but that's my position. I think Scotland's best place is within the EU. There are different views in the SNP, but that is our set of position. Uh-huh. But once again, I have to say that if we, as we hope, move forward to an independence referendum and achieve independence, we have a general election then. We have a new election. So, okay. And that is taken forward by the parties uh, or party that wins that election. But yeah. the SNP position is to rejoin the EU. Now, if you, if you become independent, if you rejoin the EU, loads of ifs I know, but you then have a border with England, which is not an EU member. That's the Irish situation writ large. Will you be looking at that? Will your government team be looking at that? Because that's a big problem, isn't it? Well, of course, all these things, and you'll see some mention of that at the conference this weekend within the SNP, and there's a lot of discussion going on uh, about that within the SNP. But can I just say, it can't, Scotland cannot always define itself by what England decides it wants to do. You know, if it wants to cut off its relationship with 27 other countries, that's England's right to choose that. But it shouldn't always be, what are you going to do, Scotland, in response to that? In relation to border Ireland... You have to answer the question, Mr Brown. You can't just leave it and say, say you know, these things, how sad. You, you have to have an answer to this. Well, I'll just come on to that to say, Brian, first of all, I remember endlessly Tory Brexiteers saying that the border in Northern Ireland was not an issue because it could be sorted digitally. It was. It could be sorted immediately. Yeah. There was no big problem with it. If you look at the border between Scotland and England, first of all, there'd be no need for any restrictions on freedom uh, of travel for people uh-huh. because I'm, we're not proposing to change the common travel area. I don't know whether an English government would do that. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, and many of the goods uh, and services will freely cross the border. Some of the goods, there may be issues with that, and we'll have to adapt to that. But that happens across countries across the EU currently. And, and to be honest... You'd have to adapt to a border which there might be customs checks or, or, or checks upon goods because the European Union, if we, if we are members, would insist upon that. Well, you say that, but of course the Tories weren't saying that when it was the, the Brexit situation. Oh, no, there's also, there'll be no checks. There'll be no checks mm-hmm. in the IEC. So, yeah, you know, now there are. Now there are. And so, so, so the precedent has been set. Now there are. That's the point I'm making is, is that the Irish example stresses that this would be difficult, not easy. I think it's really important for independent Scotland not to look to the precedent set by the UK government as it decides its way forward. But these things, of course, would be done by negotiation and with goodwill on both sides. Who wants to have um, any obstacles? And at the same time, bear in mind... The European Union does, because they'll say England's outside the European Union and we need a border. The very important point to make, um, though, and and who knows where England go in future in terms of the EU, of course. The very important point to make, though, Brian, is at that time... 
27 other borders will be coming down for Scotland uh, and uh, a massive increase in the export potential that we would have. So, uh, And we have no, there's no animus, of course, between Scotland and the rest of the UK. We want to have it as open as possible. A decision on a border would be one for them. And of course, you're right to say the EU would have an interest in that as well. But with goodwill, I'm pretty sure we can get to the right solution. And yes, we will be considering that both in government and in the SNP. In, in your own conference speech, Mr. Brown, you said Scotland is big enough, is clever enough, is rich enough, so long as we are bold enough. This is, you know, the, the idea of having the confidence to take back control, to borrow a phrase from, from elsewhere. And yet the annual JERS figures suggest that Scotland's deficit is, what was it, 8.6%, including oil in the last round of figures, by comparison with a UK figure of 2.5. Is Scotland really rich enough? Well, every commentator that you could think of will tell you that you cannot uh, extrapolate from the JERS figures to how wealthy and independent Scotland would be. Mm-hmm. Scotland is, by any judgment, a wealthy country. We just think it's wrong that the wealth is so unequally distributed. So I have absolutely no doubts. You know, if you look at when Ireland became independent, many other countries, when they became independent, the UK slated Malta, said it couldn't survive as an independent country. Of course, Scotland could not only survive, but thrive, especially if we were not wasting hundreds of billions of pounds on nuclear weapons within our shores. So I think the opportunities for Scotland are great. And JERS gives you some indication, of course it does, but the people behind that will tell you it tells you nothing about the economics of an independent Scotland, which are yet to be determined. Let me close with a big issue, Mr Brown. You you want a referendum during this this Holyrood Parliament, which is about 2023 perhaps, is what the First Minister's talking about. But the, the Constitution remains reserved to Westminster. What if the UK government just, just continues to say, no, you're not getting your referendum. We're not having an Edinburgh agreement as, as there was prior to 2014. It's not happening. It's a no. Well, the last word on this is the word of the Scottish people. They've just had a vote. It was pretty clear. They knew exactly what the SNP and what the Green Party stood for, which was a referendum. And they voted for that. If the other parties want to stand in the way of democracy, then what they have to do is challenge the SNP's plans to have a referendum. We would much rather do that in in agreement with the UK, as we did before, but recognise the mandate, recognise democracy, don't stand in the way of it, because it won't succeed. The Scottish people want their say, and they will have their say. You're saying that if the UK government say no, the Scottish government will hold a referendum regardless? But the UK government, if they uh, object to plans uh, for Scotland to have a referendum, they have to go to court. They have to take action. They have to take some kind of initiative to prevent that. And did they want to be in a situation of trying to use a court to prevent uh-huh. the democratic express will of the Scottish people to have a referendum? I don't think... If, if, if they say no, you will defy that and will attempt to hold a referendum and challenge your, your, your UK opponents to, 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 to see you in court. We have said we will have a referendum. And I, and as you just mentioned just now, Brian, the First Minister has said by the end of 2023, COVID permitting, of course. Uh, and that's what we intend to do. We will have that referendum. I've said that from the start. And I actually don't think, if you look at some of the mixed messages now coming out from Michael Gove and so on as well, putting some yes. conditions on it, and maybe in this circumstance, that opposition will not hold. And it can't hold because the people of Scotland have had their say at the ballot box and they want to have their referendum. I understand your point. I understand your, your, your stress upon that. What if, for example, I'm going to be close with this. What if, for example, the UK government says, OK, right, OK, we're going to hold the, the referendum. We, we, we give in to some extent. You hold the referendum. But this time it's final. This time, no loose talk about once in a generation. This time, you, you either win or you lose. And if you lose, you, 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 you've, you've put up and you shut up. You basically let it go and, it, and, it, and it, it is, it's, it's put off into the future that any prospect of holding another referendum. Is that a possibility? 
well, first of all, it, it's, it's not. There's no country in the world where you can tell the people there that the right to no. self-determination is suspended indefinitely. That just doesn't happen. It's not. It's not recognised in international law. It's not an international principle. They might no. want to do that, but they can't do that. But I'm confident that if we have that referendum. We will win that referendum, and Scotland will be independent. Are you prepared to wait until after the next UK general election, or are you adamant that this happens, but by 2023, regardless? Well, the First Minister's made it clear the driver for the time is really about the COVID pandemic and when the immediate crisis is over. That's what drives it rather than a UK election. And she's also said the first half of this parliament, which takes you to the end of 2023. Keith Brown, Deputy Leader of the SNP, thank you very much indeed for joining me for this uh, special Herald podcast. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant, unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. Thank you.